Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis and this week joining me through the miracle of satellite technology is a man who wouldn't let a tortoise roast in the desert. It's Matt Resby. How are you? I'm Matt. great. Like, I don't understand the reference. Yeah, well, I do. It's, I, do. It's... <laughs> I get it. I passed the test. I'm not a replicant. Yeah. yeah, you're about to tell us about your mother. Yeah, and then shoot you in the head. Yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah. That's the way these... Yeah, so it's a very... I mean, if that's how you tell if someone's failed the test, mm. it's got to be pretty labour-intensive. Yeah, barely, barely through interviewers, aren't you? Like, pretty <laughs> You don't want to be on the... They're like, do you want to be on the interview panel for Dave for the Voight Camp test? And they're like, uh, actually, I'll pass. But, like, I think it would be really funny if you interviewed someone for a job and just gave them those questions um, just to see what <laughs> happened, even if the job was, like, for like a kitchen porter or something. Um, yeah, just, and because if they got it, they'd be like, "Oh, this guy's cool. Let's let's give him the job." But if they didn't, then you, that's probably gonna like scar them for life. Yeah, we we didn't ask you about anything that was that pertained to the job itself. We just wanted to emotionally scar you, mm. just to get a rise out of you to see if you'd punch us out, asking you all of these weird questions. Yeah, yeah, and if they did, then you got to say fair play. Yeah, and then you know they're yeah. a robot. <laughs> So before we get on to our subject this week, which will be the new Blade Runner movie, which has just come out and Matt and I have both seen and uh, we've got a lot, a lot of thoughts on it, we're going to go through quickly through this week's news, the main story of which I think uh, indisputably uh, and continuing a theme of the three episodes we've recorded since we came back is a uh, sexual abuse scandal in the film industry, this time involving Harvey Weinstein, who it was revealed through an article in the New York Times has been accused of sexually harassing dozens and dozens of women over the course of his 30 years of being a movie mogul and that he had settled out of court with a lot of people which is usually a pretty good sign that someone is not entirely on the up and up about these sort of things Mm -hmm. and you know you'd like to say uh i'm shocked but not surprised so i'm not really that shocked Mm -hmm. (laughs) like there were you know like everyone says you know it was an open secret that he was uh, a, a creep uh to put it mildly for years and years and years and to give that much of a sense of how much of an open secret it was, like, I have never been within a thousand miles of Hollywood. I have very few things in the way of industry connections. But even I knew that there were there was talk out there that of about uh, Harvey Weinstein and the uh, tradition of the casting couch. Yeah, it like you say, the, the, the idea that it's an open secret is kind of... It's it, it's kind of just like in the background and you know it, and then when it when something like this comes to the he- comes to a head, you're like, oh shit, this is like absolutely appalling that this has been mm. kind of just been going on, and everyone's just kind of like glossed over it. It just becomes an accepted uh, part of the industry, which is this is one thing that like we talk about the 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 the, the scandals at the the draft house and with the the kind of uh, Harry Knowleses of the world. And this week, the guy from... Was it Screen Junkies? Yes, the guy who created the Honest Trailers series. Yes, also has been uh, kind of outed as someone who is uh, allegedly harassing people and has a a history of such behaviour, is in in, uh, those kind of spheres, there's a real light at the end of the tunnel that 
some of these spaces that we inhabit online will be cleaned up and mm-hmm. the, a greater awareness of these things will kind of encourage people who are being harassed to to kind of like stand up for themselves and 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 say this isn't cool and also for people who aren't being harassed who see harassment taking place saying this is you know not acceptable but in mm-hmm. the the case of Weinstein and Hollywood it's just inevitable that this isn't going to change anything because we live in a world where someone who can do this and get away with it can be elected president. Yeah, that's kind of the the, the elephant in the room uh, about the whole situation, isn't it, really? Is that you can't get too hopeful about it. And and also with, with Weinstein, there's the question of, you know, this is there's certainly rumours out there about other people in the film industry who allegedly engage in this sort of behavior who probably won't get brought down because they're currently too powerful or they're too mm-hmm. success they've got too many hits under their belt and there is that sense that the reason why this happened now one because apparently bob weinstein weinstein harvey's brother apparently orchestrated it which is a very strange detail of the whole thing uh, or allegedly he orchestrated it. it came on page six so it needs to be taken with a grain of salt but mm-hmm. the the weinsteins are not the powerhouse that they were like 10 years ago or 20 years ago Mm -hmm. they aren't they aren't producing the sort of cultural behemoths they were in the 90s and into the early 2000s they don't get movies nominated for that many oscars and so there's just a sense that now there's no upside in people defending him but at the same time, people aren't really defending him that much. There's just uh, people talk about the, the deadening silence about the deafening silence about it, and that some people are starting to speak up and say that they support the people who have accused him. But for the most part, people are just not saying anything because they're so used to not saying anything for so long. Mm, and I mean, for all his achievements and um, some of the you know the work that they have helped bring to a wider audience is probably the most diplomatic way I can say it they have done so uh, in terms of their business practices and their producing practices in quite an awful way in a lot of senses i mean mm. when when miramax first started they were buying properties um like i think one of their early successes was the was the secret policeman's ball i think the the um the uh, variety Milos show. Foreman. oh no yeah Sorry. no the secret policeman's ball which was all the British, like Monty Python and like yeah. a bunch of other British comedians, they'd buy those shows and just chop, like cut and shut them into any order they wanted. And you know, the people who made the films wouldn't have any particular rights over the edit or anything. And you know, to kind of get get a quick buck out. And since these allegations have come out, then you know, you're you're seeing a lot of filmmakers who have come out and said, you can tell from the way these guys do business that like. They don't play by the rules, and you know when, mm. like the I think the guy who made the horror movie was it called All the All the Boys Love Mandy Lane? Is that the name of the That's film? That's right. Uh, yeah. he, he took to Twitter this week to say, you know, they've received statements from the Weinstein Company, or it might have even been Miramax back then, saying, you know, this film made money, we're just not going to pay you. Mm. And uh, D- uh, Duncan Jones, as well, the guy who made Source Code, said, you know, it cost thirty million to make that movie. It made one hundred and fifty in America, and 300 worldwide or something stupid like that and hasn't seen a penny and whilst a lot of these stories are seem to be uh hijacking uh the real issue which is that dozens of women have claimed to have been sexually assaulted by a, a person that's awful it, it just builds this kind of tapestry 
of mm. of of kind of wrongdoing that goes back you know 20 30 years that is probably the reason that no one is jumping to his defense yeah that certainly seems to factor into it a great deal you are talking about a guy who would buy say like the Grandmaster, the the Wong Kar Wai movie that made a huge amount of money in China, was widely praised, and then chopped it up and then released it in like with a, a pittance, like a tiny number of theatres in the US. And you know, a guy who was yeah pretty uncompromising, but not in the sense of like he was pursuing a grand artistic vision, but just because he wanted to say that he had control over these movies, so. The way he exercised control was by uh, completely fucking them up, mm-hmm. uh, unless they were like by Quentin Tarantino, who he treated very, very well over the years, and so didn't seem to bother with. But yeah, a lot of people just got completely screwed by him, and so it's one of those things where you say, yeah, I guess him also abusing women seems like it fits an overall pattern of behaviour, mm. uh, and so, so that's why it's like it's not even shocking to hear that these details. The, the, the thing that's, that's shocking is like when it, you actually hear specifics mm-hmm. um, about it, when, when it's just saying, like, oh, this guy has been uh, accused of sexual harassment or something, say, like, okay, that's terrible. When you say he apparently got women to go to a hotel and then asked them to watch him shower, those are the sort of things that make you think, mm, yeah. this, is, this is just very strange. Mm. <laughs> In addition to being terrible, it's just, yeah, once you get into the specifics, it becomes a lot more real. Um, it's like that whole thing about learning that Bin Laden was an Arsenal fan. Just mm. kind of like, oh, well, now I, need, I can hate him for another reason. But, mm. you know, like suddenly it seems like more of a person once you know even, like, the, the tiniest bit of uh, personal information. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, if there's, there's going to be any kind of silver lining to this big, horrible Weinstein kind of shaped cloud looming over us is that more women will be encouraged to come out and speak out um, because it is very difficult to to do so in an in an arena where you're just not going to be believed or there's the fear that you won't be believed and that like more of this will raise greater awareness that like behavior like this is you know wildly inappropriate illegal and just downright you know fuckery just mm. yeah um that's all we can hope for it's a you know it's i really hope that next week we for once don't <laughs> don't get to start the show with this you know another sexual abuse scandal yeah because one doesn't happen not because we don't want to talk about it because i do think it's important to talk about these things when they happen mm-hmm. if only to just like we've said of our tiny little platform just say hey you know this is something that needs to be done and dealt with yeah let's just get through seven days um <laughs> Of you know not having like more sexual harassment. I mean, it feels a little bit like the dam's breaking now, though. That's the thing, mm. which is you know uh, both good in some ways, and, but yeah, wholly depressing in others. Yeah, so that's the big serious story. Let's get to the kind of light-hearted stuff for the rest of the week. Marvel announced that they were going to team up with Northrop Grumman, mm. who is a weapons manufacturer. They don't produce guns, but they produce a lot of like drone technology and stuff that's used in warfare. They announced they were going to do a team-up comic at a comic event, an event at Comic New York Comic Con. And then immediately everyone said, wow, this is terrible. This is like a wildly inappropriate thing for the one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world to do. And then within a couple of days, they had cancelled the event and cancelled the comic. And uh, I just thought that was really funny, <laughs> the, the, the rapidity with which that happened. 
Yeah, there's always a line in the uh, the opening of the something about Mary when um, Ben Stiller gets his cock and balls caught in his zipper, and <laughs> there's a whole kind of like farcical to do. But then one fireman comes in, and his line is, "What the hell were you thinking?" <laughs> and that's all he says, <laughs> and that, that just echoes through my brain when I think about like on what level did Marvel think who like let's face it in the last few years have been kind of fairly progressive um in mm. terms of like you know who they employ and and the kind of diversity of their their output to suddenly like kind of hook up with an arms manufacturer to to kind of put a comic out and the comics always have um a fairly uncomfortable relationship with violence whether it's cartoonish mm. or not and kind of thought you know, like a group of adults signed off on that and thought it was a good idea. I follow like a, quite a few Marvel writers and people on Twitter, and even they were like, uh, what? Mm. And when you consider that Tony Stark, the kind of marquee name of the Marvel brand at this point, was a character who dealt in arms and then said, oh no, this is terrible, I'm not going to do this anymore, it sends mixed messages, I think, <laughs> to the to the fans. Uh, yeah, and it's just it's just out within in also the wake of like the Las Vegas shooting. Even though, that, like I said, that the company does not produce guns, like on a just a pure like the most basic PR lesson is like maybe we should have cancelled this uh, in the wake of that or delayed it. You know, maybe we should have just kind of let this lie for the moment when people aren't quite so um, attuned to the questions of you know companies making huge amounts of money off of death mm-hmm. like wait three weeks like or try and find the gap between mass shootings mm. like they're they're increasingly small but you know there are there are occasionally periods when they're not happening yeah 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 but yeah it was just you know spectacularly tone deaf yeah and just so wrong-headed but just yeah like you say it was it was it was very funny within like this we're proud to announce this and then everyone would be like you're proud to announce what? And then they'd be like, <laughs> what are you talking about? We've What comic? I didn't... There was no comic. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> Photoshop, fake news. Yeah, and they're, they're just going to be mouldering somewhere, these uh, comics, which if anyone manages to get their hands of even a single issue of, will probably be worth quite a lot of money mm. in a few years. Just of, uh, an example of uh, yeah, tone deaf- deafness and hubris on a quite spectacular scale mm, there's probably like some really disappointed pr people who work for that arms company who were like <laughs> oh we really wanted to like soften our image with a comic but you know it's just not going to work is it maybe soften your image by doing something else my kids don't understand when i say that i helped pirate make more efficient drones to kind of drop bombs on people in faraway lands mm. they don't think that's cool for some reason but i could have brought them home this comic where iron man does it and then suddenly yeah. Suddenly, they would have thought I was cool for once. Mm, yeah, yeah. Just you know, read between the lines. Your dad's not cool. <laughs> yeah, then they'll be cool. Then they'll suddenly hate comics because their dad does it. Yeah. Like, mm, don't like them anymore. Another bit of news. There was an interesting bit of casting news, which was that Jessica Williams, who I think people maybe best know for being on the Daily Show for several years, towards the end of John Stewart's tenure on that show, and then more recently, the star of the Netflix movie The Incredible Jessica James, and uh, her podcast, Two Dope Queens, has been cast in the sequel to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, uh, which is very exciting. She's a hugely charismatic performer, you know, really, really funny person, and it's nice to see 
a woman of colour being put into a franchise that is pretty lily white, uh, it has to be said, both in the previous Harry Potter um, incarnation and especially the Fantastic Beasts one where the story took place in Harlem and didn't feature, I think, a single black person, Mm. uh, which, you know, and particularly Harlem in like the 1920s and 30s, pretty famous for having a fairly diverse uh, population. Mm, I'd say it was was probably harder to find a white person at that point. Yeah, there weren't like a lot of white people in Invisible Man, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't that uh, they were they were they hung over the story as a sense of danger and threat. They, they but, loomed you know. over the story. Yes, um, so that's kind of nice. Maybe a case of Warner Brothers maybe course correcting a little bit mm. and trying to make some good uh, choices in the future. And it also led to a lot of speculation about them doing perhaps a larger course correction, which is that in the announcement that she was joining the cast, there was a list of people involved in the movie, and the name of one Jonald Depp was not included. Jonald, I don't believe is his first name, but I'm choosing to believe it is now. Jonald. Uh, Johnny Depp, who, uh, for people who don't know, played the villain Grindelwald towards the end of the first movie, having transformed from Colin Farrell. He was going to be the... He is the villain of the series, as far as we know, but uh, he wasn't mentioned in the casting and so the cast list, and so that has caused some people to suspect perhaps that he's being creatively recast. And obviously, it's a magical world, so you can do that. I mean, you already transformed from Colin Farrell. There's no reason he couldn't just transform back, mm-hmm. <laughs> or that they couldn't find someone else to play him. But I thought that was quite interesting in light of the fact that a he's not much of a draw anymore. And B, he's widely hated. <laughs> so if they maybe are thinking, yeah, this decision we made five years ago to cast him, maybe we could uh, take a step back from that. Mm. I'm just going to wind something back a little and just say, do you think that was the first instance of us crossing or anyone crossing the literature of J.K. Rowling and Ralph Ellison in, <laughs> in one point? The kind of Harry Potter Invisible Man nexus has been, has been breached. Uh, and here we are. I never thought that would happen. But you're right. It's nice to see a person of colour in Harry Potter universe, which is it's probably the whitest fucking thing in the world. Although yeah. J.K. Rowling was desperate to kind of like retcon everything and, you know, tell us that Dobby the house elf was, you know, a gay Taiwanese woman. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's not really a thing because if you read the books, everyone is clearly white um, mm. because whilst they are not described as being white, everyone who is described as being non-white is very, 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 very clearly described as being non-white. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I haven't seen any of the, the movies, and nor do I know who this young actress is, but I um, believe you when you say it's exciting news, Ed. Um, I've been out of the picture for a while, and I've got that film on my Netflix queue now to catch up on, and we'll probably con- to, uh, comment back on this when you tell me that you've seen The Fantastic Beast 2, and I say I haven't seen it, and say I'm glad that she's in it. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely good news in in theory. Mm, but yeah. at the same time, Fantastic Beast 1 wasn't that good, so it, it'd be just a case of having a slightly more diverse and charismatic cast in a movie that still may not end up being that good. Because mm-hmm. you still have, you know, Redmayne there in the... Uh, as, as the the vacuum at the heart of it. That is the um, problem when you've got when you've got Eddie Redmayne. You need that's one side of a seesaw that is is pushing down pretty heavily. You're gonna need you're gonna mm-hmm. need to put some. You need like Lee Marvin on the other end to kind of balance that out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just, oh, that's gonna. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, Redmayne. Oh. <laughs> he is it's our, good to get back to Haiti, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. We should do an episode just about our bête noirs, <laughs> where we just list them. Yeah, 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 we probably should. That would, that would, it would be like the longest episode ever, just us <laughs> kind of like chuntering and like kind of raving about how much people upset us. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. let's not do that. We won't alienate our fan base. No, we've got plenty. I that's that's definitely like episode five hundred territory. It's literally like mm. we've run out of all other things to talk about. Yeah, um, we're pencilated. So, okay, so let's go to maybe the most ridiculous story of the week: the Rick and Morty Szechuan sauce bullshit, as I have it in my notes. <laughs> uh, do you want to do you want to fill us in on some of the details on that, Matt? Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm relatively new to Rick and Morty, having not seen an episode ever before throughout three weeks ago. Everyone else seemed to kind of talk about it, including uh, about six to eight weeks ago when a lot of people on my Twitter feed were talking about Szechuan sauce and I had no idea why. <laughs> Having just seen the episode in question, uh, literally two days ago, um, I now understand that there is a bit in an episode where Rick and Morty is in a simulation trying to escape from a prison and explains to a giant insect um, that the nicest food stuff uh, that you can find and that this uh, insect is eating is a short-lived promotional item that McDonald's produced uh, in conjunction with the Disney film Mulan, um, mm. a Szechuan-flavoured <laughs> dipping sauce for your chips. And I think as a result, there was uh, some kind of light-hearted tomfoolery between McDonald's and uh, the, the show's creators, uh, Justin Moyland and Dan Harmon, is that right? Their name's correct? No, that's right, yeah. Um, and they would they sent the, the makers some, like a big vat of it or something, and a big bottle and said, there you go, we've still got some. And for some reason, um, this uh, past week, McDonald's said, we're going to do a special promotion and we're going to have the Rick and Morty sauce uh, back on in a limited number of stores. And it had some Rick and Morty packaging on it, I believe. And it was very limited. And it turned out that they had about 20 sachets of this sauce in a few stores around the country. And the people who didn't get them have lost their tiny minds and yeah. uh, we are now living through um, what can only be described as a very embarrassing period <laughs> of the internet because <laughs> Rick and Morty fans appear to try and set themselves apart from other nerds by saying that they are, you know, super intelligent and can kind of get this humour. But they didn't seem to get any of it. And some of the replies, <laughs> some of the replies we've seen to like McDonald's officially saying, sorry, guys, um, you know, it was a limited promotion. Some of the replies we've seen to that have been absolutely outrageous. And mm-hmm. I think there's been some kind of rioting. There has been kind of uh, open attacks on what essentially are like low paid service workers yeah and the whole affair kind of started off being funny and now it's kind of i want to kind of file it away in that kind of area that i i kind of like to call the nerds are becoming nazis uh like mm. geek, geek culture seems to have turned into white supremacy in about 10 years which is uh kind of horrifying and this is just this is just another chapter in this kind of weird stage we're going through where suddenly a lot of angry white dudes on the internet are suddenly feeling so kind of entitled <laughs> that yeah. they can uh, act in an appalling fashion. Oversource. Yeah. Oversource, yeah. I mean, like you say, the videos that are posted, and, and on one level you can say, okay, it seems to be them just doing some light-hearted trolling or whatever, of shouting, give us source or whatever, and like, you see videos of them and people are kind of laughing and doing it jokingly, but... 
it's not a joke to the people who are just trying to do their fucking job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're just there trying to serve people and being like, no, we don't have your fucking sauce. It's, we ran out, they didn't give us enough, it was a dumb promotion that was done for fun. Why are you ruining my day by doing this stupid shit? Uh, why, why are you acting aggrieved over nostalgia you don't have because you weren't born when Mulan came out and all you know about it is that Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland wrote a silly joke about it in their programme in which they were just basically saying, isn't it ridiculous that with all of the great power that the character that, that Rick has that makes him essentially a god in this universe. He wastes it on the most <laughs> petty bullshit. <laughs> and you are now living out that fantasy in real life by screaming at someone who makes, like, $10 an hour or whatever it is. Mm. It's, it's going to be... I really hope that we can move past this and everyone in a couple of days will think, oh, wasn't I silly? And does something positive. Mm. With all that, like, uh, anger and kind of pent-up frustration at not getting sauce... Source. Once again, it's about source. And I mean, it won't happen, but, you know, one can hope. Yeah, one can hope. It's just ugh. it's just such a, like you say, it's embarrassing. I'll quote David Sims, the, the critic and co-host of the Blank Check podcast, who posted the, one of the videos or retweeted one of the videos and said, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen on this dumb, hateful website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it really it really is. You just look at it and you just think, why, what, what are people? Mm. Why? <laughs> Yeah. What is this? Yeah. What is this bizarre uh, kind of, simulation we're in? It kind of uh, raises a slightly more interesting kind of point about the Rick and Morty fan base because mm. it's somewhat troublesome, isn't it, Ed? Because there is this kind of dichotomy or double standard of, of what appears to be a Rick and Morty fan base of, of, of the people you would expect to be into Rick and Morty and people you would so not expect to be into Rick and Morty. Mm. And there seems to be this weird overlap, this kind of Venn diagram, and yeah, it's it's like they, sh- they should be like the kind of the soundest people ever if you're into Rick and Morty because that show is so strange and so niche, but yet <laughs> it attracts some incredibly repellent behaviour. Yeah, it's it's very weird. It does seem to be that like the articles about Rick and Morty's having like a toxic fan base have started to outnumber the articles about it being one of the best shows on television. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, like, it having a toxic fan base is not new, it's just that suddenly it's become more apparent because the show, I think, because they did that thing where they brought the show back suddenly as a surprise on April Fool's Day, like they had the, the episode with Szechuan chicken McNugget sorts, Morty. Uh, it's because they aired it like that, suddenly it was like a big it got headlines and the ratings, I presume, have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become more apparent, but I know that, uh, I think it was Todd Vanderwerf, formerly of the AV Club and, and now Vox, who said that when they had, uh, when they were doing recaps of Rick and Morty, um, they had to keep swapping reviewers for it because they had uh, women reviewing the show and they just got endless torrents of abuse from people commenting on it. Wow. And then even though they were writing positive reviews mm-hmm. and then they swapped it to a guy and then the abuse stopped uh, and so it does really seem to connect with a very repellent corner of the internet your gamergator adjacent groups which obviously then leads you to the alt-right and everything like that and people who enjoy the show but don't seem to realise that it is against the views that they hold. Mm-hmm. Like they seem to think it's this show that's like big into like libertarianism or anarchy or anything like that. 
and it really isn't because Rick isn't that positive of a character like no one on the show is particularly positive but it, you seem to get into the same situation that happened with Breaking Bad where a lot of people get really wrapped up in the idea of the hero nominal hero of the show being infallible as opposed to being a terrible person who does things that are exciting to watch mm-hmm. uh, or The Sopranos is another one as well people get too wrapped up in the idea of Tony Soprano as badass gangster as opposed to melancholy, <laughs> depressed man mm-hmm. <laughs> who thinks that he's been born into the decline of the Western world, and obviously he was right, but yeah, it, it does really feel, like you say, that the fan, this is really exposed to a wider range of people that uh, the fan base of Rick and Morty, not all of it, but you know, there are plenty of people who just watch it and say hey, that's a fun show, mm-hmm. I enjoy that, <laughs> um, there are ones who, and this is true, I think of pretty much every fandom, they make it too much a part of their identity, and then any questioning of it ends up leading to, you know, torrents of abuse and and reprisals, mm. uh, which is, yeah, gross. Yes, people just need to stop being dicks. That's what we've learned mm. from the last three weeks. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure it's probably what we'll be learning from the next several years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, one final story for the news. Uh, the Fast and Furious series this week, it was revealed... We're delaying the ninth film in the series. They've got to nine films. Nine. Yeah, nine films. The ninth will be released now in 2020, uh, 19 years after the first one came out, which is crazy yeah. uh, for so many reasons. Like the fact that Vin Diesel is still like an action star and he'll be pushing 60 by the time that film came, comes out uh, is, is incredible to consider. But uh, the reason why was that they have announced that there's going to be a spin-off starring The Rock and Jason Statham, playing their characters from the most recent movies. Uh, and this caused consternation within the cast. Tyrese Gibson uh, you know, said about it that he felt that Dwayne Johnson was making the franchise all about him and kind of breaking up the family, calling him a clown. Uh, Ludacris also said, basically said things about it and, and Vin Diesel then tried to play Peacemaker, talking about the difficulties of brotherhood or whatever, or, or fam- about family and keeping everyone happy and together. Uh, but yeah, it just kind of seems like Universe have realised there's there's plenty to be gained from taking these two charismatic actors who were a big part of the two most successful entries in the in the series and breaking them off and doing their own thing with them, as opposed to trying to make a movie where you coordinate all of those people's schedules. Mm. Although, let's face it, most of those people probably aren't that busy outside of <laughs> filming Fast and Furious. Yeah, um, I mean. So one part of me wants to say, like, do, do these guys know that you know, they're not really related? Um, <laughs> it's not real. But then, like you say, and Vin Diesel seems to have been the rational one here, that, um, you know, they're not getting any younger. And the franchise um, needed uh, a rock-sized shot in the arm to uh, reinvigorate it. I mean, it was doing all right. It took it to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. And if your cast is getting older, the horse is being flogged uh, considerably uh, harder towards the end of the series, and you need to um, take it off in a di- different direction, then perhaps it might be prudent to start it off with the biggest action star in the world. Yeah. I mean, someone who is perhaps, with the exception of something like Baywatch, a notable kind of misfire, uh, is quite bankable. Um, mm. So... To me, that makes sense. And Vin Diesel, reading between the lines of Mr. Diesel's uh, tweets and Instagram messages, 
um, that um, that seems to be that's the logical progression of it. Like if you know, I'm sure there are people who will watch Fast and the Furious 19 with the same cast and doing the same stuff, but they're not going to be getting any new fans by carrying mm. on doing that. I can't believe I'm saying this about the Fast and the Furious films, of which just to, just to point out, I have seen none of except <laughs> except number six, um, which I saw on a bus in um, in whilst traveling around. I saw it six times on buses in Spanish. Wow. Um, I have not seen it in English. Um, in the first three times, I didn't really understand what was going on, but obviously the action translates very well. Um, yeah. But by the end of it, I was kind of getting it. Uh, I know how to call someone an arsehole in Spanish. Um, <laughs> because of that, thank you very much. Well, that, that's my only exposure to the series, uh, is number six in Spanish six times. Um, but more power to them. Like, you know, it's successful. But they've got to be, like, perhaps a little bit more self-aware that, you know, whilst they have somehow got to talking about making nine and ten in this kind of franchise um you know perhaps they should be kind of maybe a little bit more self-aware that they are not going to be carrying on forever yeah and that they need to find some way of sustaining it into the third decade of its Mm, of its lifespan fast and furious (laughs) three decades what oh yeah and considering that like the um the third one didn't do so well and everyone was like, oh well, that's it then. They're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then three years later come out with like one that was even one of the biggest hits and it's been nothing but an upward trajectory since then. Mm. It's just it's, it's just crazy to think about but also fascinating to kind of look at when people talk about the fact that it's one of the most diverse series out there. Like again, in light of Fantastic Beasts, the fact that it has a, a very racially diverse cast and a very strong international flavour and appeal uh, the, the fact that it does seem to be providing Hollywood of all the lessons they could possibly want mm. and steadfastly refuse to listen to. In, in terms of like delivering the same thing over and over again, um, it's a little bit like Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes. Like, <laughs> he did it once and that was funny, and then he did it again and that was funny, and then three times you're like, okay, and then four times, not funny anymore. And then he just, they just keep doing it until it's successful again. And just keep, <laughs> keep plugging away and they'll just keep doing it. And then. You know, I think Vin Diesel said he was going to drop out at ten. Um, yeah, I think which is that's, yeah, that's admirable of him. <laughs> that's good of him. Um, but yeah, you imagine know. if he'd said that in two thousand and one. Yeah, if, I'm going to said... keep playing this character of Dom. I think his name yeah. is. And I'm going to keep playing him for the next twenty years, uh, <laughs> for ten installments of this, of which the seventh will be a billion dollar. <laughs> Um, at, the, at the time when, like, the only film that made a billion dollars was Titanic, um, mm-hmm. then you know we'd you know we'd all be doubting Thomas's. Um, but now, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem that crazy. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. Uh, so now, in terms of uh, films that kind of are unlikely in terms of uh, how long they've lasted and their great legacy, let's get on to Blade Runner, mm. which you know, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine came out this weekend. The original Blade Runner, which came out in 1982, was uh, a movie that didn't get great reviews, didn't do too well, earned about $27 million, which in modern day money would be about $83 million. So not great for a reasonably pricey uh, 
sci-fi movie starring one of the biggest stars in the world at that time, Harrison Ford, mm-hmm. seemed like it would disappear into obscurity, particularly coming like in the same year as E.T., which was the science fiction movie of the year. Mm-hmm. But ended up being one of the more influential sci-fi movies of all time. It, it crystallised a visual language for cyberpunk, which had existed previously to it, but this very much gave people a visual reference point for it, and, and you can really see its influence on pretty much any dystopic fiction since then, and certainly on things like anime. Uh, it's taken a lot from it because there's a lot of cyberpunk in, in anime, and it's a much bigger deal in Japanese visual media than it is in the West. Mm-hmm. And for at least sort of 10 years or so, maybe even longer, there's been talk of them trying to revisit that world through sequels or prequels. And a couple of years ago, Ridley Scott announced that he was going to spearhead a a new version of it. And uh, we found out that it was going to be directed by Denis Villeneuve, who I think at that time probably was just coming off of Enemy or Sicario. Uh, Hadn't quite done Arrival yet, so it still seemed strange that he would be the guy that would do it. Um, But... Uh, on the back of Arrival, I certainly was quite excited to see what he would do with a kind of a, a bigger budget and a higher profile name for a sci-fi work. Uh, so I was I was pretty excited about it. How did you feel about Blade Runner 2049 before seeing it? Uh, it's strange how quickly this has changed because mm. I seem to remember about a week ago when we talked about initially doing this episode... That I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be interesting because I'm kind of ambivalent towards Blade Runner. Like, I've seen it a bunch of times, but it feels like one of those films to me that is easy to uh, admire and very difficult Mm. to love because it is, you know, kind of objectively one of the most immaculately designed films you will ever see. Um, yeah. uh, the production design, the cinematography, everything visually um, is, you know, just astounding and, you know, very easy to get lost in. But I seem to remember the film as being something that I could take or leave. Um, I kind of remember that it was kind of moody and I, I kind of remember the last time I watched it being kind of like, oh, yeah, that's kind of good, whatever. So um, I went into the attic and dug out my copy of Blade Runner and sat down and watched the final cut on Thursday, the day before I went to the cinema to see uh, 2049. And watching it again, I suddenly thought, Jesus Christ, this film's amazing. And <laughs> I kind of all of a sudden was gone from being ambivalent about the original and kind of fairly nonplussed about 2049 to being, you know, I was, I was in the driving seat of the hype train at that point. Yeah. I kind of had a similar reaction because, because we both revealed to each other that neither of us really liked Blade Runner, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I think is like reasonably like not, it's not, a wildly popular opinion, but I think there's a fairly even split. I think a lot of people there's there's people who are like deeply passionate about Blade Runner, but there's also people who will say, yeah, I can see why it was like hugely influential, and I can admire the craft, mm-hmm. but not really connect that much to the story. Part of that is the fact that it's been recut so many times that I think that some people see it as very daunting trying to figure out which version you're meant to see mm-hmm. because there are now I believe eight discrete different cuts of it <laughs> um, mm-hmm. out in the world and. And so I, I feel as if like it's not it's wildly uh, renowned as, as hugely important, but not necessarily accepted as a masterpiece. And that that was kind of my point of view for a very long time. 
Uh, and then I watched it and I didn't quite come to the point of like loving it, but I did come to the point of saying like, no, this story's, this movie's like way better than I remember it being and the story is a lot more engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, I still feel like the last act, apart from everything that Rutger Hauer is doing, is a little bit rote, mm-hmm. as if it's kind of like, okay, this is where the villain and the hero battle each other, but everything about it in terms of world building is, is really, really incredible. And I think part of the reason why I like it more now is when I first watched it, I think I was probably like 15 or something, and in the years since then, you think, uh, A, like I've seen more of the stuff that it, inf- it influenced, so I understand why it's important, but also I've seen more of the stuff that influenced it. So mm-hmm. when, for example, uh, Deckard and Rachel first meet in the Tyrell Corporation, now you're like, oh, this is like totally a take on The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. And suddenly understanding where the what the noir part of neo noir means, <laughs> and kind of having a great appreciation for how well it mixes this traditional Hollywood storytelling with with science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was just the last point on uh, Blade Runner, just how well it holds up now um, mm. is super impressive. Um, yeah. So so little of it looks dated, or or kind of phony uh, or fake and it was one of the most exciting things about Blade Runner 2049 about how they approached the special effects but we'll get on to that when we, we kind of get into it but I, I liked I liked when I watched it again that it very much has that feeling that uh, like uh, 2001 has that like uh, when special effects are treated as part of the world and as part of um, like a tool to tell the story uh, rather mm. than just on their own, then, you know, it's much easier for them to kind of just blend in and be forgotten and not stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah, it's, it's a world that feels very real and I think it its version of Los Angeles feels like a genuine city. It Like how cramped and claustrophobic and sweaty it feels. Like it does feel like a place where people are living and that the place probably stinks <laughs> to high heaven. Uh, and that's a kind of a, a grit and a realism that I think a lot of science fiction movies miss out on in the pursuit of tr- pursuing an idea or just a, a style and a look. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they forget the human aspect, and that's something that I think is really, really crucial into making a science fiction movie work and feel, feel real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of Blade Runner 2049, which picks up, as uh, I guess, some, sometime after... Blade Runner, which took place in 2019, picks up 30 years later. This time, Ryan Gosling plays the Blade Runner of the title, a policeman whose job it is to hunt down replicants, these bioengineered androids that look like humans and are more or less indistinguishable, apart from the fact that they are, like, wicked strong, (laughs) Uh, and are designed for, essentially, to do slave labour and work in these inhospitable environments on the uh, outer colonies but uh, in a one of many twists on the old formula uh, Gosling's character Kay is in fact a replicant which we learn in the opening scene in which he gets into a fight with Babe Bautista who, uh, who's a, a character he's been sent to hunt but in hunting game he sets off this chain of events which uh, are revolving and this obviously spoilers I guess <laughs> to let people know we're going to talk about this uh, some of the later details in the movie, but sets off this chain of events where they hunt for the child of Deckard and Rachel, the android he fell in love with in the first movie, played by Sean Young, and 
who it is revealed they had had a child together when they ran off into exile and then the child uh, went missing and so the the mystery of the story is Gosling kind of slowly piecing together the fate of this child trying to figure out what happened to them where they went and also through that having his perception of the world challenged and changed because he's he's encountering something uh, miraculous which is the thing that they will teach this character system in their first thing together is he says essentially he says that even though he's an older model than Gosling he's greater than him because he's seen something miraculous and that is that journey of of his uh, of Gosling's awakening is what the movie chronicles mm-hmm. um uh, yeah it's it's way more of a mystery box than the first film which yeah. uh, is very much a kind of straight procedure or a guess of trying to find these four uh, rogue replicants whereas this has got more depth to the story i guess and does pull a few fast ones on the audience i have to say it certainly did mm. on me it pulled the wall right over my eyes in what sense which particular twists kind of because just like ryan gosling's character i believe that he was the son yes okay and i'd, yeah. I'd convince myself that because i wanted it <laughs> which is yeah. exactly the trap he falls into yeah that was the one that really misled me as well because it's one of those things once you say okay there's a child, the child would be in their 30s now, it's the right sort of age, and then there's, there's stuff to do with implanted memories, which obviously leads you that way. But, but once, before they get to that, um, before they get to that point, every time he meets a new person, you're trying to think, okay, are they the child? Mm-hmm. Is Mackenzie Davis the child? Is, you know, anytime there's someone who seems like they'd be about the right age, you try to figure it out, and then all signs point to Gosling. And then he's like, oh, okay. And then you don't consider who else it might be, which is a nice a nice bit of misdirection on their part. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's uh, very deftly done, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm really pleased that Ridley Scott did not come back for this movie because yeah. um, whilst Ridley Scott has done a lot of films which are pretty decent, he seems to know which side of the camera to stand behind, um, <laughs> Um, he sometimes struggles with um, more of the kind of human elements of the films uh, that he makes and I kind of was very pleased to see uh, a bit more humanity in the film and very surprised to see uh, Harrison Ford acting which is uh, something I didn't think I'd see at this stage of his career. Yeah because I was like the joke everyone says is that when you see him in the trailer and he's wearing just a t-shirt but you do wonder if it's the most Harrison Ford performance imaginable of him essentially just showing up and being like, ah, I'm not going to wear any sci-fi stuff, just film me. Yeah, it'd only, but... it'd only be more Harrison Ford if he crashed his plane onto set. <laughs> and they just started rolling. Yeah, so so him genuinely doing this great, great performance as Deckard, as a an older version who's been living in this irradiated Las Vegas for decades and has been on his own except for a dog who may or may not be artificial mm-hmm. and has kind of cut himself off the world in this abandoned casino. Uh, you know, he, he does a great job of portraying him as a guy who has lost everything for what he hopes is the right reason. The fact that, you know... His, he knows that his kid went out into the world, but to protect the child, he didn't find out where they were going or anything, and he helped them wipe the record. So even if he wanted to, he couldn't find them. 
and I think that is a it's a really really solid and, and powerful performance that he gives particularly uh, towards the end of the movie like there is so much character in his face at this point it's so weather beaten and uh, and so creased that you really do get a sense of the weight of the years that have passed and it's particularly powerful like if as I'm sure a lot of people did, you've just watched Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing the contrast between Harrison Ford in his like mid, his late 30s versus him now in his mid-70s, uh, you do kind of get the sense of the, the passage of time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What did you, what was your, like we've just jumped straight into talking about plot elements and twists and, and uh, Harrison Ford's rugged face, but like what was your, your reaction to the film uh, given your previous history with uh, Denis Villeneuve and original ambivalence towards the original Blade Runner, did did this? Because a lot of critics have been saying this is better than the original, and like even some of the the, the critics who are slightly uh, cooler on it than than those guys have been saying, you know, it's every bit as good as the original. Uh, where mm. do you where do you fall on that now? I I would say. I don't know if I could say if it's better than the original. I could say on first blush, I like it more than I liked the original on first blush. Mm-hmm. I think because the story is in some ways, like say it's deeper or, or it's, it's, I would say it's shaggier than the original. Mm-hmm. Like it goes in directions that are, it has like a, a wider array of characters. You know, one of the, the main characters is a character called Joy played by Anna Diarmas, who is a, uh, basically this AI program who functions as the Gosling character's girlfriend who um, essentially enables him in his quest by pointing him to think perhaps that he is the son and, you know, supporting him and, and all those sort of things. But I really enjoyed their relationship because, I mean, uh, the, the, the critic Austin Walker, who is uh, a writer for Vice's uh, Waypoint, their gaming site and, and co-hosts there, podcast he had a good point about it which was that a lot of early cyberpunk movies and a lot of bad later ones are just about the question of do robots have a soul Mm -hmm. and that's a fairly basic point to explore and what he really responded to in Blade Runner 2049 what I liked about it is it does feel like it's going to that next level which is not just are robots human but it's like can robots feel loneliness Mm -hmm. Uh, can they feel ground down by a job that they don't like and stuff like that you know they try and get into the the smaller but vital questions of what it is to be human and I really really liked their relationship I really liked the way that them the factors into the Mackenzie Davis character playing the the prostitute and their weird threesome where deeply uncomfortable sex scene yeah which plays like the a similar scene from her but uh Slightly more palatable than the one from her, um, but also like because uh, Anna de Armas's face is overlaid over Mackenzie Davis's. At a certain point, I was like, "Oh, if you compare combine these two people, they just become Felicity Jones," <laughs> uh, because there were moments where just just the the eeriness of those two faces being overlaid on top of each other, they started to look like different actresses, and it was really strange. Mm. But I, yeah, I loved all that element of it and what it explored about. I guess the, the nature of sex work and the idea of it as being vaguely kind of a positive for for some people and can be viewed in a positive light, which is not the sort of thing you expect to see from a 
big Hollywood blockbuster. And what I really responded to was like, you know, it's a huge movie, $150 million budget at least. You know, that's the stated budget, so it's probably a lot higher. But for a large part of it, I was like, this like feels like a Tarkovsky movie. Mm. Like not with quite the same moral and spiritual weight or whatever, but in terms of its pacing, in terms of some of his images, like the the image of the dead tree and the burning house are pretty much directly taken away from like the sacrifice mm-hmm. uh the movie he made in the 80s uh and you just kind of thinking it's amazing <laughs> that, that he even have made this uh and again kind of plays into the the feeling glad that ridley scott didn't make it yeah because i don't think he would have at this point that level of ambition to try and make a movie that way yeah it's um i felt i felt the same way um watching it and thinking this is a very unusual feeling blockbuster and mm. a lot of it um there's been a lot of reports of like there being a lot of walkouts because yeah. the um kind of pre-release promotion the trailers and everything kind of bill it as very actiony there's a lot of kind yeah. of like doors being kicked down and guns being waved around but i mean the original the original blade runner is not really that actually i mean there's some action in it uh, it's mostly mm-hmm. Harrison Ford getting his ass kicked because that seems to be all he does in <laughs> Blade Runner. Yeah. He's getting beaten up by robots. Um, but this film is uh, like nearly an hour longer than than um, the original Blade Runner with kind of less action, I guess, and more kind of, um, uh, kind of plaintive character reflection and, yeah, like we say, lengthy scenes between robots and and their um operating systems um um <laughs> sequences where characters recite bits of nabokov novels um <laughs> it's like it's it's does not the, the what a big 150 180 million dollar movie should feel like which is why i kind of thought the film was amazing and mm. um for me, it felt very. It reminded me a lot of Mad Max Fury Road in the sense that yeah. um, I was like, "Oh, they're making like a remake or like a like a sequel to Mad Max thirty five years afterwards." Did we really need that? I mean, I remember the last sequel to Mad Max that wasn't that good, and then they made it, and I was like, "Well, okay, wow." I mean, that's a great movie, and also they did it in a way that made it feel completely new. Um, very fresh and not like a pale retread of the original kind of trotting out all the the, the kind of things that the fans are going to like and you know as much as I love Star Wars that's what they're doing now they're making Star Wars movies that hit the, the, the right buttons for people who like the original movies whereas this you're like well the music kind of sounds a bit Vangelis-y but like oh it's it's kind of not it's different and it's weirder and it's darker and it's 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 uh kind of more oppressive and the cinematography kind of reminds me of the original but we're in these kind of big wide open spaces now but it still feels really claustrophobic the way that they uh filtered that new wine into old dusty bottles to use that mm-hmm. metaphor is you know i i thought it was absolutely astounding the way they they managed to do it without aping the original too much whilst making a film that feels firmly at home in that universe yeah and the nod to the original which sometimes when you have something like this like where it's it's built on nostalgia or a lega sequel as the uh as the term uh, has been used and was coined by matt singer like the nods will be like these super obvious obvious things that are meant to get people 
kind of like to nudge each other in the center. It's like, hey, that's from the first one. That's the first one. Mm-hmm. Or like, I think the worst example of that would be something like in the Clash of the Titans remake, where you briefly see like the uh, Clockwork Owl mm-hmm. and they make fun of it. It's like, yeah, that's kind of cheap. Yeah. But in this one, like the callbacks to the original would be things like you see ads for like Pan Am and Atari, mm-hmm. which are there because the original was made in 1982 and those companies still existed then so they had them in the movie and it's more there to give you a sense of a continuation it's like okay this isn't taking place in our future it's taking place in the future of the future that we saw in 1982 Mm -hmm. which is like a nice thing and there's not there's you know they don't try and they, they they have clearly really sat down Hampton Fancher who wrote this one or wrote the story for it who also co-wrote the original with David Peoples they clearly sat down and thought where does the future go from what we saw in, of 2019 in, in the original Blade Runner and they've really kind of considered it and they thought okay corporations will get more powerful it'll be all about the the uh, 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 the the world's kind of ecology is going to collapse. So, even though you've had these rebellions from all of these replicants, they'll need to bring them back because it's the only way to survive. And so, that's where the the character played by Jared Leto gets all of his power from. And uh, I've got to say, I don't like Jared Leto at all mm-hmm. in most things. I feel this film made a really good use of the kind of anti charisma that he has. <laughs> yeah. The fact he's such a dislikable person and everything he was talking about when he's giving like the world's most obtuse TED talk <laughs> in every scene, yeah. it really does feel like, okay, they understand that no one likes this guy. <laughs> and so it really kind of plays off. He does become this hugely unlikable person uh, and it works as presenting with this semi-Masleanic monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you should mention... Um, Hampton Fancher, the original writer. I'm just going to read something to you, Ed, that I found whilst I was digging around in uh, the ever-entertaining IMDb trivia pages uh, mm-hmm. of Blade Runner. This is an exact um, um, excerpt from, from said page. Uh, Hampton Fancher was approached to write a script for this film. He agreed to write the sequel, but in a novella format mixed with a screenplay. He wrote the 110-page novella script and then told them to leave him alone. <laughs> that is exactly what it says and I was like oh okay fair enough but yeah you're right um, uh, Jared Leto who's someone who we have been he's kind of like the the nega red main isn't he um, <laughs> like, uh, he is someone we are not keen on um, but it, more for his antics I don't like his antics um, yeah uh, did his you... performances are, you can kind of take or leave mm. but yeah his Everything about his public persona is not endearing. Yeah. Did you did you see that? Um, this is a side point, but like, did you see the uh, interview with Jim Carrey on the Norm Macdonald show earlier this this week? No. It was like a script. He t- he tells the story about when he was doing uh, Batman and Robin with Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones, and he went up to Tommy Lee Jones in a restaurant, and he knew Tommy Lee Jones hated him, and he went up and said, "Oh, hey, how you doing?" And Tommy Lee Jones gave him a hug and said, um, "I just can't sanction your buffoonery." <laughs> Which is, which is how exactly how I feel about Jared Leto, mm. um, but he is perfectly tolerable in this film because he is playing <laughs> the worst human uh, that you can think of. Um, although I'm not sure is he human, and that's one of the big takeaways from the new Blade Runner. I've got no idea what's happening. I've got no idea what's real and what isn't. 
Mm. Which is yeah. kind of a real, real kind of like a thing that bugs you about the first one. And I'm really glad they weren't like, oh, Harrison Ford's a replicant in this one. Because, yeah, he kind of is. But then we're like, oh, is he? And you're like, oh, I don't know. And it's like, it's dead clever. Yeah, I did like that people were saying, like, right before the film came out, saying, like, this is our last time to argue about whether or not he's a replicant. And mm-hmm. then when you watch the film, I was still like, is he? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, they've, they've, they've actually not clarified. Uh, is the dog real? Great. Yeah, it's, it's great that they didn't clarify it because one of the things that is just so lazy about sequels and prequels and things like that is when they just explain the mysteries away. And they're just kind of like, okay, this thing that you wondered about for 30-something years, here's the answer to it. And then you're like, oh, I kind of right. preferred it when I didn't know. Well, yeah. And so this takes the opposite example, of opposite track of saying, okay, we're going to expand the world a little bit. You're going to see more of what the, uh, the world of Blade Runner looks like. But we're not going to kind of answer anything for you. We're just going to tell you a different story that happens to take place in the same area, which is, uh, you know... a laudable approach to making a sequel. Mm, I read, whilst researching this, I read an interview with uh, uh, Villeneuve and he was saying, um, when they were like saying, oh, are you going to answer the question of whether Deckard's a replicant? And he just said, that mystery is really important to people and I'm going to take care of it. And originally, when I read it, I was like, well, he means he's going to take care of it and answer it once a brawl. But what mm. he actually meant was, I'm going to preserve the, the mystery for everyone. Um, yeah. I'm going to look after... Uh, it rather than you know he's literally going to take care of it rather than take care of it in a Tony Soprano sense. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's he's definitely seems to have positioned himself as the caretaker of the franchise, going so far as like to commission a, a trilogy of short films explaining some of the details leading up to the the movie. Um, one called Blackout Twenty Twenty Two, which explains one of the major events that's constantly referenced in the movie which was this cataclysmic event that destroyed all digital records, uh, directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, who directed the, who created Cowboy Bebop, and also directed a bunch of cool shorts in the Animatrix, uh, and then two directed by Luke Scott, Nexus Dream, uh, Nexus Dawn, sorry, and Nowhere to Run, which are fine. But, um, like, the, the care and attention that clearly went into this movie and expanding the broader... Later in a world, I think definitely marks out that Villeneuve wanted to make a really good movie that paid tribute to something that I think probably meant a great deal to him as a fan. And you can see uh, the affection in it, um, but uh, also you kind of feel comfortable that he's not afraid to mix things up. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, like he, he does take us out of the the rainy neon kind of streets with people eating noodles we really do see that um but then all of a sudden we're kind of wandering the kind of wastelands of vegas where uh ryan gosling is dwarfed by these giant kind of like naked female statues and that that's one of the like if you kind of talk about fan service of, of in kind of lego sequels as it were the bit where ryan gosling is talking about talking to his drone mm-hmm. uh, and he's asking him to zoom in right a little bit, left 30, up, down, uh, enhance. I thought that was a really clever way of... of Because it obviously it's, it's, it's weird when you watch an old film like Blade Runner, which is set in the future, and you think, oh, none of these things are futuristic. 
because they still use pay phones, whereas we have <laughs> everything in our pocket. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, there's the bit, the famous bit in the original where he is he 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 inserts an actual photograph that someone's printed. Imagine that, like in 2019, someone printing an actual photograph, inserts it into a machine, and then kind of enhances it and and like kind of gets into it, and that's like a famous bit. And they kind of recycled that bit in when um, Ryan Gosling's looking for uh, life signatures with his drone. But it's a very subtle way of doing that, keeping the technology and, and those things alive whilst also not li- making it completely out of place. And then he just finds a bunch of bees. Yeah. <laughs> at, which, at which point I expected uh, Nicolas Cage to turn up. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I think didn't quite work for me in terms of the world building versus the original is that the original is a movie that's kind of lousy with great character actors like mm-hmm. you obviously you have um edward james olmos who makes a, a appearance here um you have mm at walsh you have uh james hong you have that guy from the shining whose name i forget uh who jack nicholson um, mm, no, was it Scott Mike Brothers? <laughs> no, the guy who plays Al the bartender as Tyrell. Oh yeah, yep, 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 yep. Uh, you you just have this like great selection of character actors who, and and then lesser known character actors who just play like the vendors and stuff that Harrison Ford goes to speak to, and they they create this sense of a really vibrant, eccentric, but but real seeming world, and as as good as a lot of the supporting characters in this, you know, you have like Robin Wright as the as, as Gosling's boss, who's a really kind of interesting character who you initially think is just going to be this domineering hard-ass who's just going to tell him to do things, but as you go along, you realise she has genuine feelings for him and maybe even something of a romantic attachment to him, and like she talks about how she sometimes forgets that he's a robot and stuff like that, and you know, yeah, these, they're really good characters, but they they all kind of feel fairly functional in some ways, like they all serve something to the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the only character that really had that same sort of feel to me was Barkhad Abdi's character, Dr. Badger, who they go to and he, he you know, he does, he serves a, a minor plot purpose in the Alan analyzes a toy horse and figures out that it was irradiated so it must have come from Vegas, so he obviously provides them with a crucial link in the plot. But most of the stuff he's talking about, he's just trying to sell him on a goat or a horse or something. And mm-hmm. it's a really colourful performance from him. And I think that was the thing that, I, that this largely seemed to be missing was that sense of, of eccentricity from him. Uh, even though, like I say, like, people like Mackenzie Davis, who only has like two or three scenes, but really makes a, an impact with them. Uh, you know, they, they, they didn't quite have that same sort of feeling to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the prime example for me is the bit where... Gosling goes to the orphanage and he's in the kind of like the it's San Diego is basically a giant like landfill, isn't it? And yeah. there's an orphanage that like uh, Harrison Ford's kid um, went to and was kind of that's where they were left last like 30 years ago. And he goes there, we meet kind of Lenny James, who's kind of like a part kind of Fagin type character who's mm-hmm. kind of um, teaching all these kids to like assemble like rudimentary machinery and essentially making his own slave labor force but the character doesn't really go anywhere and you know doesn't really leave that much of a like kind of indelible mark and you can get away with it in the original when you've got mm at walsh because he's mm at walsh and lenny james is a good actor he's he's really fun to watch in like the walking dead and stuff 
Um, but like he's, he's he feels a little short change there. He just kind of gets some exposition and then he's out of there. Yeah, he just kind of mumbles to himself. So you think, okay, this is guy he's kind of crazy, I guess. But mm-hmm. like, like you say, he doesn't leave much of a mark, and, and he does. He's basically there so that Gosling can then walk to a furnace, which sparks off a a one of the memories that he's been implanted with, and you know that's that leads to a very powerful emotional moment as he explores where that memory came from, but it does feel very functional. But it does also like like the original. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the original was there were some scenes where crucial data would be related, but you would barely hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key example for me would be that there's a scene where Harrison Ford goes to a snake shop to try and figure out where a scale came from. And the scene, he walks in and the scene is shot from outside and the sound is really muddy. So you it's can't. It's like a soundproof glass, isn't it? Yeah. You're, you're on the wrong side of the glass. And it's one of those moments which really seems to underline what Ridley Scott's focus is on, which is that he understands that the story is kind of thin and it's really just there so he can show off the other details of this manufactured world. And that, in some ways, that whole sequence of the Orphan is felt like the most Blade Runner moment because it's really there to show off this incredible abandoned foundry, which I presume is probably a real place in Budapest, which is where the movie was shot. and is it kind of has that the whole movie has this like real Eastern Bloc bleakness to it, uh, which seems to come through in the fact that everyone else in the movie apparently is Russian. Um, there's kind of a big kind of Russian influence on the movie in general. But yeah, that that even though you probably could have done something more with the Lenny James character, it was at least cool that you got to see something fascinating in terms of the, the setting. Mm, yeah, well, they could have just shot it in Walsall. Uh, they could have <laughs> saved, saved a bit of money than playing all the, the casting crowds in Budapest, I guess. Yeah. Uh, were there any other kind of areas of the movie that you thought were like really insane? I mean, obviously, the, we've talked about the, the, the look of it, but like Roger Deakins' cinematography throughout, people have joked about it being just the one perfect shot Twitter account, the movie. But mm-hmm. it is just like you, you can't deny it's a really visually beautiful movie and, and he does an amazing job of making this dysto- dystopic vision uh, gorgeous to look at. Yeah, he, and he's, he's very kind of uh, deliberately moving out of that colour palette of the original movie, which is dark, uh, kind of rainy streets occasionally lit up with a bit of neon. Mm. And then when they go to the Tyrell Corporation, you've got that, uh, the kind of like the sunrise behind the pyramid and uh, th- that's what you think of when you think of Blade Runner it's very dark it's very uh, noirish in this it feels like um, you know we're out in kind of like bleak misty wilderness and then we're out in the kind of like the, the rusty kind of desert of, of Las Vegas but then um, uh, in the interiors it feels very different um, he's managed to capture that we're 30 years in the future but it doesn't feel that much more modern mm. Um um, it really it does... feels like a stagnant world. Yes, yes, absolutely. And also, when they go to the, um, what's the uh, the the equivalent of the Tyrell Corporation, where Wallace. The Jared Le- Wallace, yeah, um, you know those interiors, like where everything is constantly reflected with water, mm. um, and uh, the way they use light in in the interiors is is incredible, and. Uh, you know he's an amazing cinematographer 
Um, and this seems to be his kind of like like a playground for him to 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 kind of explore a lot of sci-fi tropes in a really interesting way because we've seen all these things before we've mm. seen all the but just like i said like we we're, we're very lucky to get this film and have this story told in a way that um we didn't expect and deacon's photography is is all part of that because yeah it's it's taking tropes from sci-fi and, and especially dystopian sci-fi that we've seen a million times and making them feel fresh and new yeah, I was going to say about the reflecting water thing. Like, it does feel like a really nice visual metaphor for the idea of an artificial space with something organic within it. Mm-hmm. And the because the, how that is A, and, and the, the tension between those two points being central to both Blade Runners, but especially this one, where, like you say, the, even though everyone in the future now seems to know who the quote-unquote skin jobs are, including themselves, like Gosling has an awareness of the fact that he is a replicant. Um, The lines seem to be blurrier, which is why the existence of a child born naturally, (laughs) born of replicants, it presents such a danger because it shatters the previously established order. Um, I really like the fact that Deakins was able to weave that just into the design of the Wallace building but it also felt believably like a wanky thing you would get in a high-rise corporation Mm. (laughs) Um, that they would have just water reflecting off of an office room for no good reason I kept thinking of every time he walked into the room where Leto spends his days sat in that chair um, of the episode of the American Office where Michael <laughs> falls in the the koi carp pond on the way into and then but yeah but why is there a koi carp pond in the office that kind of thing um, the other thing that really um, uh, brought the film and elevated the film for me um, was the score because obviously one of the most notable things about um, the original is the Vangelis score which is you know very synthy and and kind of very distinctive and. The score for this is composed by Hans Zimmer, who, you know, he knows what he's doing. Uh, but then also a guy called Benjamin Wolfish, which I don't I don't know a huge amount about him, but I know they did Dunkirk together. Um, and I believe that he is a kind of an industrial noise specialist. Mm. And they kind of mix up the score with um, a kind of synthy score, but, you know, classically arranged, um, combined with his kind of like... Um, ambient noisescapes and the effects I thought was quite startling. Yeah, it was really impactful and it did seem to move away from... Because I think I'm I'm not a huge Hans Zimmer fan. It's not that I think he's bad, it's just that I don't see why people obsess about his work over like a dozen composers who do very similar things to what he does. But I was really pleased to see that it wasn't big on just kind of generic strings or the the warm sound that he's kind of become synonymous with from Inception and whatnot. This felt like he was working in a much more of an ambient soundscape and there were times when the music, you you couldn't tell what was music and what was just sound effect. I think that Mm -hmm. is a very difficult thing to achieve. but it was it was really effective to kind of give you that sense that you didn't know 
if what you were hearing was like non-diegetic music or just the natural hum of this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not like a soundtrack you want to go home and um, like put on, and, <laughs> you know, have in the background at a dinner party. No, um, and not well unless you want to get rid of your guests early. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. Uh, in terms of like um, guiding us through that world and 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 through the the kind of deepening mystery, um, I thought it was perfect. How has the film done at the box office? Because the early reports, I mean, it's only been out a few days. The early reports are that it's gonna underperform for a film that budget, but then also a lot of the kind of the the, the reaction of the punters is might generate a lot of negative word of mouth. Um, to mean that it might not be uh, long for this world. Yeah, it's current. The, the opening weekend in the US was thirty one point five million, and they were hoping for fifty. But mm. even at fifty, it, that would have been not great for a movie of this scale. But at the same time, you gotta think when, when you hear, "Oh, it's a sequel to a beloved, or at least like a fairly well known movie, and it's cost hundred and fifty million, You think. Yeah, it should probably earn like at least fifty on opening weekend. But then when you watch the movie, you're like, thirty-one million's pretty good for for, mm. for the kind of movie it is. Um, but yeah, so thirty-one point five million, and then worldwide on its opening weekend, it earned eighty-one point seven, which also is pretty unimpressive. I think it could be getting to a situation where, like Fury Road, where it, if it could leg out and get like to a hundred million in the US, which would be decent and then if it makes about 450 worldwide then it's not that much of an embarrassment but it does feel like if it was a more traditional movie it'd be worse but it'd probably be doing better yeah whether you like the movie or not it's exciting to see major hollywood studios making big budget films like this and this is not going to encourage them to make more films like this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in a world where we live in kind of cookie-cutter kids' animations that are just pumped out and, you know, superhero movies and reboots and um, kind of, like, tone-deaf, um, edgy reboots of long-forgotten TV shows... Um, you know, this is very refreshing, but, you know, it looks like it's not, you know, 500 million, like, globally is very, very ambitious because um, that's what it will need to make to make its money back if you kind of apply the, the standard um, kind of idea of what it costs to market a movie. And, you know, it's been marketed very heavily. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I Mad Max Fury Road had the benefit of having positive word of mouth come from people who'd seen it, whereas... I don't. I think you know, your fans of Blade Runner, you, you kind of people who have seen the original, the people who um, who are aware of the original, who have, have seen it and might have maybe hadn't seen it before this year and had, had sought it out and watched it and then gone to see this will like it and love it. But it's a hard sell. It's nearly three hours long. It's uh, quite, you know, like I say, the score is very kind of oppressive. It's there's long stretches of kind of introspective kind of nothingness mm. you know people just spouting nonsense yeah um at least the original was 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 pretty linear it was pretty kind of like hey find these people and oh one by one we're gonna tick them off yeah this sequel is it could be a hard sell for for new fans 
Yeah, I think it, it's it's obviously going to find its audience in fans of the original or people who are into a kind of hard, heady, hard, cerebral sci-fi, mm-hmm. uh, who I think will, will get a lot out of it. And, and I think there's enough there for like a genuine, a general audience to enjoy, you know, there's moments of humour and the action, what little there is, is pretty good. But it is, in general, like if you're just wanting a kind of escape from, you know, the, the drudgery of day-to-day life, it's not really going to give you that. Um, no. You know, dystopian fiction in general doesn't really give you that, but this one especially does feel like, um, yeah, it, it wouldn't really be escapist fare. And, mm. you know, that's that's not what it's trying to be, but that is what it was marketed as, and that's that's the problem with trying to sell a movie <laughs> in general, but especially one where a director has been given carte blanche to try and do something big and exciting. And as edifying as that may be uh, for us to see and, you know, for for films in general, uh, yeah, it's something that is probably going to bite it, uh, come back to bite it. Mm, Yeah, yeah, which is a real shame. Yeah. The only point, uh, final point I'll say on this, uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion about the diversity of the movie, just the fact that the original had a lot of Chinese actors or Asian actors in small roles, and this one is fairly white. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that I was kind of aware of, but I don't know if it's something that hurts the movie. But yeah, you know, I think there's always a sense that when you watch a movie that's set in the future, you kind of start to feel, or at least I do, you start to feel a bit icky when the cast are mostly white because it just started thinking, what happened to everyone who wasn't white? <laughs> and, mm. I mean, in the world of Blade Runner, you can kind of think, well, probably something pretty terrible, because that seems to be the sort of place it is, but you do make, make you wonder where all of the Asian people who lived in LA 30 years ago have disappeared to. Yeah, especially when the the design is leaned so heavily on Asian iconography. And the um, computer programs speak Japanese <laughs> at certain points. Yeah. Yeah, um, and like there's there's the like signs for bars and stuff in like Sanskrit and things that you kind of just they're just thrown in there, and when that's not seen as being represented in the world, it then starts to feel like a bit of shallow design. Yeah, um, I think the thing that I thought you were going to say, which is something that I certainly felt and have seen a few people mention, is that the film might have a bit of a problem with its representation of women in the future mm-hmm. um uh especially has um kind of some of the characters just exist in a kind of sexualized capacity yeah like, uh, it, it, some some of it felt and i think had robin wright's character not been like that she could have easily fallen into that trap of being that kind of archetype uh, police captain busting the balls of of uh, someone for not playing things by the book um but she kind of moves out of that with you know like you said um some kind of hidden depths um if she hadn't been there i think i would have found it way more problematic and like the most interesting female character is the character of love um uh, played by Sylvia Hoax, I think mm-hmm. I'm mispronouncing her name. It just ends up being like choked and drowned by a dude. Which, yeah. Uh, given how we started this episode and how, you know, we are desperately trying to move away from things like that, did make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
it did make me wonder would I like this movie more if her and Gosling had swapped roles or if the new Blade Runner had been played by a, a woman instead of a man and mm-hmm. I certainly feel like that scene I would have found less uncomfortable um, yeah especially in terms of the fact that the original Blade Runner does have a scene in which Harrison Ford essentially forces Rachel to have sex with him knowing yes. that she is a replicant and so for the follow-up years later to a movie that has like a fairly problematic depiction of women to say, okay, this big action sequence at the end is going to end by a hero choking and drowning a woman to death. Yeah, it probably wasn't the smartest choice. Um, yeah. Because but... if, you, if you look at it like as, as the facts of the case, uh, mm-hmm. two, killer, two killer robots fought, it to the, fought out uh, to the death, but then when you've got one of the, the victorious robot being a dude uh, holding a woman under the water until she dies... Yeah, it, it it felt a little... Yeah, I was shifting uncomfortably in my seat during that bit. Yeah, so in terms of yeah representation, I think it's a movie that could have done better, but... Oh, oh yeah, it scores low, I have to say. Yeah, but, you know, I think... I guess that the question of is, is that what it was aiming for, and clearly it wasn't, but, mm. but at the same time, like I say, it, it had a multicultural Los Angeles in every design choice with maybe three black people in it so yeah. it, it was it was a weird how the world was not populated by the people who clearly are meant to live there mm, i got a theory mm-hmm. um like obviously the film was shot in budapest mm-hmm. um kind of kind of speculate as to the availability the wide availability of non-white extras yeah, um, yeah. being perhaps a factor it sounds like i'm making excuses yeah um, but that could be a factor because obviously films are expensive you can fly your principal cast and your secondary cast halfway across the world to and you remember you got to like put these people up and feed them and give them per diems and everything and and you know that shit is expensive yeah um so you normally draw your extras from the local populace and if you're in budapest i think that's pretty white bread yeah as opposed to the original which i believe was probably yeah definitely was shot in la because they shoot one scene in the train station don't they um filling in for the office of uh emma at walsh yeah probably oh, okay. They, they would have had, you know, like I say, they would have had access to Asian actors to fill out the, the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so I can see from a filmmaking standpoint and production standpoint, I can see why these choices are made. But it's still, it's the sort of thing where when you think about it afterwards, you're like, um, I'm really not entirely... that That's the sort of thing that is for us, it kind of, it, it breaks the, it breaks the spell of disbelief a little bit. When, mm. like I say, when you have a, a world where everything is clearly designed for a population that's fairly diverse, and then everyone's walking around, it's like um, not that many Asian people here. It seems. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we end the show as we do every week with shot reverse shot recommends, in which we talk about a piece of pop culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you might enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got for us this week? Um, I have picked a film um, that is was kind of inspired by seeing Blade Runner 2049, a film mm. that um, predates uh, our podcast and we don't think we've ever really had a chance to talk about it. It stars Ryan Gosling um, and it was the film that I saw of his that I was like, 
ah, he can do something other than kind of be uh, moody uh, and, you know, kind of looking cool while he's, like, smashing some dude's face in. Um, a film from, uh, I think, about 2007 called Lars and the Real Girl. Ah, good one. Which is a very gentle comedy about a um, kind of late 20-something uh, man played by um, the aforementioned Ryan Gosling, who... Um, is kind of lonely and has a rather wholesome relationship with a, a hyper real sex doll. Um, and um, it, it kind of sounds like it should be a kind of like a bawdy comedy, um, but it's really not. It's a very kind of like sensitive portrayal of like a, a kind of a guy who's, you know, like I said, very lonely and uh, like a little confused and how he reacts to uh, how everyone reacts to uh, his kind of new girlfriend. It's kind of like a, a delightful little movie. Um, and someone uh, I saw compared it to um, Harvey, mm. which is perhaps the best. <laughs> if you can imagine a 21st century Harvey with a sex doll instead of a rabbit, <laughs> then you've just imagined Lars and the Real Girl. Um, and it's film it's widely available everywhere um see it and you know if you know if you only know ryan gosling from like drive um uh, and like only god forgives and 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 like you know the place beyond the pines and all that kind of stuff is that what it's called that that movie place yeah it's always called if you only know him as or like even from like the notebook then uh give lars and the real girl a chance because it will um show that he has got a little bit of range and um it's a good movie as well yeah, I think it, between that and the nice guys, I think it would be nice if, <laughs> yeah. he, did, if he did more offbeat comedy characters because it seems to be something that he can do, but for the most part, casting as a as a bruiser or mm. as a kind of like pretty but kind of dead behind the eyes jazz fanatic. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to recommend a movie that I saw uh, last week and which at the time I was kind of, I mean, I'm about whether to recommend, but on reflection, I think I, I would recommend it's the movie Battles of the Sexes, directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Farris, who were most famous for directing Little Miss Sunshine and then later Ruby Sparks. Uh, this is probably my favourite of the movies that they've directed, though for uh, transparency's sake, I don't particularly like Little Miss Sunshine and I thought Ruby Sparks was pretty good, but uh, I, I, I like this one more. Um, it's a movie about the tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, which took place in the 1970s, where um, it, was, it was this big media circus about Bobby Riggs, who styled himself as kind of a, a chauvinist dinosaur, who said that essentially the women are bad at tennis, they're just there for eye candy, and they don't deserve equal pay with men, and, and kind of played this character to take on, um, take on uh, women and essentially selling himself as this anti-feminist figure and Billie Jean King reluctantly uh, ended up playing against him and, and the movie is about that contest but it's also about Billie Jean King as a, a closeted gay woman who uh, enters into this relationship with a hairdresser played by Andrea Riceborough in the movie and the reason why uh, I'll, I, I'm recommending is that Emma Stone and uh, Steve Carell are both very very good in the leads and it's kind of a funny uh, enjoyable movie but the thing that I really really liked about it was the scene where Stone and Riceborough first meet is I think one of the best depictions of kind of subtle flirting I've ever seen in a movie and it's this really kind of tactile and sensuous moment in 
that, that you don't see in kind of a mainstream, vaguely awards-friendly movie. Um, and one thing I thought was really striking about it is it's a movie with kind of a very bankable, recently Oscar-winning star playing a real-life figure who was gay in real life, where her sexuality is not the focus of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is very striking in terms of what the where Hollywood has moved its depiction of gay people over the years. Because you could imagine 10 years ago, the whole thing would be the fact that she's gay and she can't be who she is, and, and that is part of it. But it it's portrayed more as just like, oh, this is just a tapestry of her life. Tennis was the important thing for her. Beating this guy was the important thing for her. Uh, and like the sense of camaraderie she had with the other players on the tour was uh, was also very important, uh, and it's just a, like a really really good textured movie, um, and it also has a fantastic performance by Sarah Silverman as uh, the manager of the women's tennis tour that Billie Jean King founded, uh, who's like she's just really really funny and you know really kind of forceful, uh, and it's great. Her, her performance is great, the opening scene is great, and the rest of the movie is pretty fun. So uh, I'd recommend it. It's currently on sort of wide release in the US, and uh, I imagine it'll be coming to the UK fairly shortly. Mm, cool. I, um, I'm always kind of excited to see that. And we've got two tennis movies out at the minute with that and the Borg McEnroe thing, mm. um, where, you know, you wait a long time for a tennis movie and two come out at once. Mm. Yeah, it's like 2004 all over again when we got Wimbledon and then a few months later, Matchpoint. Oh, I thought you were going to say like the Royal Tenenbaums because yeah, oh, it's yeah. got a great, it's got a great tennis scene in it. It does that. Yeah, let's do a let's do an episode about tennis movies. Like, mm. That be about like five minutes long. Strangers on a train. Yeah, uh, the, the bit in the apartment where he strains the spaghetti through a tennis racket. That is the best one. That, that is, is the best of all of them. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, then please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Recommend us to friends who you think would enjoy the show. It helps us get more listeners. You can find us on Facebook and we are on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>